Hello, I'm Carson Sestouli. Welcome to Fangraphs Audio. Because you listen to Fangraphs Audio, you might also be very well aware that Fangraphs held its first live event in New York City last month, August. The live event served as an opportunity not only to meet Fangraphs personalities, but also for better baseballing writers to exchange ideas. And what follows, we offer you the media panel from the Fangraphs live event, hosted by Jonah Carey. The media panel also features Will Leach of Deadspin and New York Magazine, Michael Silverman of the Boston Herald, from MetsBlog.com, Matthew Cerrone, Alex Beyer of WEEI.com in Boston, and finally from the Wall Street Journal sports section, David Biederman. Among other topics the panel considers, one is the use of Twitter in breaking news stories, um, the cases of the Boston media and the New York media, and the degree to which the writers are merely trying to push the readership's buttons as opposed to actually providing learned analysis. We have the question of what makes a good sports section and how that might look different than even a couple years ago. And finally, the idea of blogger access, both to clubhouses, front offices, etc. Here is the media panel, moderated by Jonah Carey. All right, I guess we'll start the next panel. I'm Jonah Carey. Hi. And uh, this is a baseball media panel. We're going to talk about a lot about mainstream media, blogs, all that stuff. We have a great collection of talent, and uh, we'll introduce them one by one. And I wrote our intros. Uh, Matt Cerrone, right over there. Matt, you already got to meet a little bit, but I'll introduce him a little bit more. Uh, 2003, Matt started Mets Blog as an out-of-market Mets fan while in college, continued to write as a hobby, uh, took it up full-time in 2006. Mets Blog now averages 3 million page views per month. Wow. Dude. Four and a uh, half. What's that? Four and a half. Four and a half? Yeah. Dude. Oh, this, where did I get this then? Probably me. Oh, all right. Uh, with roughly 45,000 unique viewers every day, in 2007, he partnered with SNY, TV home of the Mets, helped develop more in-depth content for MetsBlog.com, uh, does some stuff with SNY.com, and he also blogs about blogging at MatthewCerrone.com. And his Twitter handle is Matthew Cerrone, which is C-E-R-R-O-N-E. Matt Cerrone. David Biederman, that handsome gentleman over there. Uh, he works uh, for the Wall Street Journal. And uh, exactly. Uh, David's been a big part of that success. I'll, we'll talk a little bit more about the journal, actually, uh, just because I write for them and so does Dave Cameron, so we're incredibly biased. We do actually have a sports section. It's a great, it's, it's probably the best sports section in the country. That and the KC Star, I would say, are one and two. You can argue about the order. Uh, David has written all kinds of cool stuff uh, in an interesting kind of very journal-esque sort of way. Very wry, but also cerebral, that kind of stuff. He's written about NFL games having only 11 minutes of action, which is one of the best stories that I've read in recent times. Uh, and the hell with football. Screw those guys. Uh, <laughs> And also that the uh, Comic Sans font was the hero of the whole LeBron James to Miami debacle, <laughs> which I completely agree with, too, by the way. And you can follow David on Twitter at uh, WSJ Sports. Very simple. David Biederman. <laughs> Alex Spire. <laughs> Alex covers the Red Sox beat for WEEI.com before joining WEEI.com. He covered the Red Sox for several New England and national publications including the New Hampshire Union leader, New Hampshire, gotta love it, 
shout out to the Granite State, big time. Boston Metro, Boston Herald, and Baseball America. Outs graduated from Harvard. Wow. <laughs> Short to a Canadian school and got a BA. Uh, he served as the captain of the Bay team. Again, wow. Uh, and uh, he'll be an excellent... Uh, well, he, I mean, the picture of you on Twitter, though, yeah. is like with crazy... You need to follow my Twitter, which is Alex Spire is uh, S-P-E-I-E-R, but it had... Uh, I apologize if that was the only reason why I was invited. Well, yeah. <laughs> Alex has, or had, probably the best facial hair ever. Like, I mean, made David Ortiz look like a clown. So it's just like... As I so often do. Right, exactly. So we're kind of disappointed, I'm not going to lie. But Alex Spire. <laughs> Michael Silverman. Handsome gentleman over there. Michael began covering the Red Sox and baseball for the Boston Herald in the middle of the 1995 season, uh, propelling Mo Vaughn to one of the most ill-begotten MVP awards in the history of organized sports, by the way. Uh, Luckily, I did not have a vote then. That's right. A Kansas City native and Royals fan. There's another. Royals Do you know how many baseball writers, really good baseball writers are Royals fans? This is bizarre. This is like... If you're a sports fan, you pretty much have to root, or a baseball fan, and you're a writer, you have to root for a lousy team, I guess. That's that is correct. Yeah, right, okay. Uh, Michael has banked some great assignments over the years. Uh, three trips to Dominican, two to interview Pedro Martinez. Although Pedro, what, like two days ago, yeah, was giving the daily nothing. Everybody was doing interviews. An exclusive means very much. Yeah, right, exactly, I guess so. Uh, did a trip to Tokyo to cover baseball over there. Did one to Puerto Rico. Never been to Montreal, so... Whatever with that. Uh, and we forgive him for that. His uh, Twitter handle is Mike Silverman BB. It's Michael Silverman. <laughs> and our friend Will Leach. Ah, yes. Right over there. A native of the booming metropolis that is Mattoon, Illinois. Will attended the University of Illinois where he broke all of Marcus Liberty's records. He actually averaged 52 points and 29 rebounds a game for the Fighting Illini. He's a little guy, but I mean, he can bring it. Uh, Will has been nearly as much of a journalism whore as I have. He's written for The Black Table, New York Times, GQ, Fast Company, Slate, Jugs, and Perfect Ten. So really, just kind of covers the gamut. Barely legal. Don't forget barely, barely legal. Barely legal. Shaved. I mean, all of them. It's fantastic. Terrible about paying their writers on time. Uh, I don't know why they're untrustworthy. Well, they pay you, reason. but in different ways than you would yeah. think. He founded Deadspin, which is... Deadspin. Awesome. Uh... Used to be a fun place for deranged commenters to discuss fun sports stories, and now those deranged commenters have sites of their own. It's like this feeder yeah. system for the internet. It's pretty awesome. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> he's a four-time author. His latest book is "Are We Winning?" It's a fantastic book. I've read it. You should totally get it. It's awesome. Do you do a uh, Do you do a one where you read it? Uh, Audio book? Uh, uh, no, no. Can no, you think, do that? No, it's a waste. I consider it a waste of internet bandwidth. Actually. Is it? So, yeah. See, ah, yeah. ah, that would be good. Uh, it's available in bookstores everywhere. I can read it now. Book. I have a copy. Nice. I'm just going to read the whole book the whole time. Uh, it's on the interwebs. It's everywhere. And he's a newlywed. So mazel tov for that. His Twitter handle is William F. as in Frank Leach, which is L-E-I-T-C-H. It's Will Leach. And uh, I'm Jonah Carey. Uh, my Twitter handle is... J-O-N-A-H-K-E-R-I. I write for Bloomberg Sports. We're going to be doing a presentation later. Not me. I'm not smart enough for that. Um, you can get us at BloombergSports.com. We also have a blog, BloombergSports.mlblogs.com. And I'm almost done with my book. It's called The Extra 2%, How Wall Street Strategies Took a Major League Team from Worst to First. It comes out March 22nd. It's going to make Moneyball its bitch. <laughs>
<laughs> that's how good it is. All right. So, that's, this is being recorded, right? That's, that's awesome. I have done the worst like, job selling my books, uh, by the way, in retrospect. I'll Man. teach you about Oh, don't worry. Self-promotion is great. Um, so, we started, one thing I did was I introduced everybody by their Twitter handles, and so we had the trade deadline this past Saturday, and we had John Heyman and Ken Rosenthal and Buster Olney, and everybody's coming on and talking about uh, trade rumors, and it was really interesting, and, and I just found the day much more fun with Twitter. So, first of all, how many of you are Twitter users? I'm just sort of interested. That is a, a load. That's a lot of people. All right. So let's start with Michael. Um, since you're a beat writer and we were all glued on Twitter and, and, and all this stuff. Uh, one of the debates, I guess, is if you are writing for, you know, you're writing for the Boston Herald and the Boston Herald, it's their business to try to get page hits and to try to get views and all this stuff. If you're breaking a story in the Boston Herald or, or wherever, in, in, on Twitter instead of the Herald, on Twitter instead of ESPN, anything like that, are you depriving your publication of hits? Is it, is it a bad idea? Why do people go on Twitter to break stories? What's the point? Well, I might be fired if I broke a story on Twitter. Okay. But it's very easy to do it almost simultaneously. So it's a matter of almost of semantics. If you write your two-sentence, you know, the Red Sox signed Carlos Delgado, I will not consider that a major piece of news. It might happen. But if they do... I post it to the Herald blog first, immediately create a bit.ly link, and then go to Twitter, and it's there. And I can do that within the space of about a minute and a half if mm-hmm. I'm quick. And it's, remember, it's 140 characters, so it's not that difficult. So it's a tool. It's another tool. And hopefully, you know, the, the publishers and editors, our bosses at newspapers, we, they love it when, you know, according to the Boston Herald or according to whatever media outlet, you know, if I break that, if someone finds out via Twitter or they find out because they happen to click on the blog first, it's six of one. So it, to me, it, it's a tool, but basically do it to the blog first and then immediately get it ready for Twitter. Anybody else have thoughts on this? Because especially people who write long form, like someone like Buster Olney, I, maybe it's hard to write, I guess, 2,000 words. I mean, if he's writing this big, long column versus he wants to get heard this right out there. So, uh, I mean, what do, you, what do you guys think about that? I mean, does it create a conflict for your, for your I'm, boss? I'm curious. I, I, I don't, I bet most places don't have that policy of firing you to before, like, I think maybe Clearly. they should, it's but I don't not, think it, they do. No one's ever said it to me. It just yeah. would, I... It's logical. I, like, it does seem logical to you give right. the story fear, to the place Always fear the worst. Right. But certainly, like, <laughs> on, certainly on trade deadline day, that didn't seem to be the case at all. I don't think most people were doing that. They were... Yeah, they were fire information out fire, as fast as they get to it. To this third-party website that doesn't pay them and does Like, it's strange when you really think about the fact that, like... This is really just a website that you go to that has no connection to the place that you work and no connection to the place that pays you. You're just like, here, you have it. And like, yet it's you become invisible if you don't post to it. And so it's created yeah. this interesting dynamic where you have to kind of give in to this Twitter hegemony. And, uh, and otherwise, you're fucked. Like, your story just never gets seen <laughs> um, yeah. unless you, you know, really believe, unless you get it out there and push it. Well, you know, I think the hope is whatever if you... Using. If you have it on Twitter, then you'll get that magical, and I know I'm in newspapers too, that according to media source, uh, and then people will go to your website and start viewing your page. I think that would be the hope, right? If you get it on Twitter, if you're the first one, 
then at least for a 10-minute window, everybody <laughs> else, and 10 minutes is probably an exaggeration, but everyone else has to say according to the Boston Herald, and then whenever somebody hears that, then they go to the Boston Herald, and hopefully. Theoretically. Uh, theoretically. Exactly. But really, the Bleach Report's going to take your story and get search exactly. optimization yeah. and put the top of everything. It's true. Uh, I'm sorry, it's true. I Bleach Report. I don't mean I, that's, I don't mean that's an insult. I'm just saying that yeah. they know how to do search engine optimization. Yeah. Eventually, they will get the pages for that. Correct. It's the it's also the the obsession with first. Yeah, I think that's part of it too. You know, there's there's the idea to be first, and then there's also the idea to be there, and that reliability is kind of where the uh, ad revenue and where the the pages and the traffic is going. It's more of the consistency. So, unfortunately. Uh, you know, when a, a newspaper breaks a story that way, you're going to get Buster Olney or whomever. I hate to keep picking on him, right? But he's going to confirm the story with whoever. Yeah. It's almost sort of like the newspaper just tipped him off to then call his own sources. And he's not Although, necessarily credited. And it happens sometimes. Yeah. But I think that's part of it. And so I look at my own habits over the last seven to ten years of doing this. And, you know, initially I would bookmark all of the, the local New York newspapers and just refresh those pages on trade deadline. Then all of a sudden it started to be people were just refreshing my site. Mm-hmm. Now they're just refreshing Twitter. You know, and it, that evolution is going to keep changing. And I don't necessarily know it's who's reporting it so much as you have this reliable place to get it and then figuring out how to, you know, capitalize on it. I do think it's interesting, and this is not breaking news here. People talk about this, that the, the value of getting a scoop now is... I think minimal is a bad word, you know, to use, but yeah, you, you get a scoop and 30 seconds later somebody else called and said, hey, is that right? Off the record, somebody confirms it, and then you have to. Well, a lot of the, the, the mainstream outlets, I think, have struggled with the idea or the reality that information is actually worth a lot less. Yes. That the supply and demand is so off that the actual information, and you're in the business of reporting facts and information, it's a difficult reality, but the truth is information is not what it was. And yet and Twitter, Twitter is everywhere. like Twitter privileges information and yet discourages analysis because you can't really have analysis over the course of 140 letters. So I, I had somebody and, actually make a, make a yeah. tweet that was interesting to me that I, I haven't been able to look at in my head, which is he uses Twitter for news, websites for opinion and analysis. Which I think is fair, although I think that there's also a gravitation towards people becoming, uh, you know, Twitter dependent as if it was a kind yeah. of informational heroine or something. Totally. Yeah. I mean, people watch a daily show for news. It's the same thing. Uh, I have a follow to Will, actually. Will wrote uh, just a little small Tumblr post about this, and he said that um, you basically kind of oppose the idea that people want to build up followers. That Twitter well, everyone wants to build up followers. Everyone right. wants to be read by a lot of people. Mm-hmm. But the idea of, like, I really don't understand why... It's, a lot of this goes back to my Deadspin days. Uh, one of the biggest fights that I lost, one of many, um, uh, with them over there was the idea that I hated the idea that we're putting page view counts in the stories. I don't quite understand that. And I definitely don't understand it on Twitter. Because the fact is it's turned something that's fascinating, the idea of like, like this immediate information, this way to interact and connect and get your voice out there and read other people's voice, and it's turned into a competition. It's turned into, how many followers do you have? Hey, who wants to be my 3,000 follower? And, like, who cares? Like, first off, if, like, 15,000 people, or let's say you have 10,000 followers, that's actually not very many people in the planet. Like, it's just not. <laughs> and, and, and it's weird that people are like, oh, he's got 10,000 followers. Yeah, that is that is less people than my hometown. You talk in a funny accent <laughs> like that? Is that how you normally talk? Oh, he's got 10,000 followers. But I don't quite, like, and it's another weird thing about Twitter, too, is that, like, if I were an, uh, if I were running a media organization, 
certainly, like, let's say Buster only, right now Buster only has ESPN in his name, but let's say he doesn't. Let's say Bill Simmons, for example, who doesn't have ESPN in his Twitter name. If he leaves, is like, like, first off, if he leaves ESPN, he still has all those people. Like, in a lot of ways, a lot of this is about the personal brand rather than the brand that you write for in a lot of ways. And that would certainly worry me. Like, sometimes I wonder if, if all stories should be, uh, uh, as originally reported by Twitter, <laughs> like, in a lot of ways. Like, in a lot of ways, almost every story could be like that. And, you know, certainly when we try to build, when organizations try to build up names and try to build up people they work for, you know, if that person goes somewhere else, that person still has their people and so on. And so, yeah, the, that's a different point than the, than the Twitter idea, but than the number of followers idea. But certainly, I do hate that idea, the idea that this is now this thing where it's like, who's got more followers? Who's doing more? And so on. These numbers are meaningless. Half these people are bots. Right. Like, you know, I mean, the, the notion that this somehow means anything, well, it's, it's, it's disappointing. I think you could argue, the only argument on that, and we have this with when you put on our website the most popular story, which is basically saying who has the most readers, who has the most clicks, is that it, for the reader, it can make it easier. If a reader sees that somebody has 200,000 followers, they at least know, well, other people are, are doing this, so maybe it should be valuable. Does it Now, does that encourage individual thinking? Not necessarily, but it still helps a reader. I totally agree that people like us are then, oh, we have more followers than you do, and, yeah. and vice versa, but it helps the audience, I would argue. But I'm not sure I'm really crazy about the most read thing either in a lot of ways, because certainly one thing I can definitely vouch for from, from my time at Deadspin with Gawker is that, you know, I mean, really, it's, it's not always about the value of the story at all. It's about the value of the headlines. About boobies. The, boobies, <laughs> yes. Uh, 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 a wristwatch around it. Well, anyway, um, uh, you know, it, it is. Like, it's not really about value at all. And, like, I used to always joke with them. I would, get, I would be like, listen, guys, if you guys just want me to put Britney Spears in every damn headline, I will. I mean, we'll get more eyeballs, and it'll be an unreadable site, but you'll have the most web story of the day. And I think, and I think those numbers are helpful, and I think they do make a difference to say, okay, this is connecting with someone, someone and this is connecting with someone. But they're also easily manipulated and don't really tell you what's actually the most valuable. Like, well, isn't the job as a journalist and as someone that's reporting news is to decipher what is important to and be, what matters rather be, than just blindly go off numbers? To yeah. be fair, we probably should have somebody from ad sales up here. Because my guess is they would have would a completely different. Um, it would be, yeah. <laughs> but they probably have a completely different take on the metrics. Yeah, but I don't care what they. Well, I know. And I we don't care. Yeah, that's right. well, we don't, we don't write in a vacuum, and you know, pun intended. You have to be a twit to care about how many followers you have <laughs> on Twitter. But it's perfectly natural to that we compile these things, and that is what, like, like Matthew said, that's the engine that drives. Unfortunately, we don't we don't give out we do give out the product for free, and that's why right. newspapers are in a in a pickle right now because they don't know quite know how to make money. Right. Yet they're they're giving away the product for free, and uh, they're going to have to start monetizing it somehow, in some way. And eventually, whether it's good or bad, it's going to show up. The, the the rationale for charging advertising rates, or whatever, it's going to be reflected in Twitter followers. Tumblr is a good example in that they have a similar system. Uh, it's a very similar product. Uh, that it's a satellite uh, tool that you could sort of drive traffic and, and, and whatever off of, of whatever your, your main content producer is. So, uh, but they do their follower numbers, um, you know, in your dashboard. It's not necessarily right. public, which does kind of, and I understand what you're saying, kind of makes it a, an ego thing. It makes it a little uncomfortable because, you know, for instance, I may only follow 50 people. Uh, but then the people who follow me are offended that I'm, you know, and we get this weird kind of relationship going where why does it really matter? You know, um, I have 
endless Twitter lists that I follow a bazillion people on, that that doesn't necessarily count on their number. Like, it's just a weird system, and it really doesn't make any sense. Behind the scenes, I can understand from an advertising point of view or for your ego or whatever it might be, but up front, it is kind of awkward. Okay, I want to move on to uh, Boston. By the way, can everybody hear us okay? Is that the mic's all right? Okay, good. So um, we have two guys here from the Boston media, and uh, I, I live in New Hampshire, and so I get kind of the Boston media too, and I'm fascinated by the Boston media. So I want to ask Alex, um, there are people within the Boston media, and I'm not going to name names, but let's say, for example, somebody whose name rhymed with Schman Schmanesy. Let's say, for example, <laughs> someone like that. Um, and even in Boston, you know, you might have some No idea what you're talking about. No, I don't know. And, Curly hair boyfriend. Let's say, and let's say you lived in New York, and there was somebody who was, you know, like to push buttons, like I don't know, Schmeichmens Schmesser. Let's say that. So someone like that. So if there were people like that, and they were getting a lot of page views, and and uh, God knows how how many listeners uh, they get on FAN and all that stuff. If you're someone who's trying to enter the business, and there are a lot of young writers and, and bloggers and people like that here. Does it set an example that that is the way to do it? Is to really try to push buttons and, and to be contrarian, but kind of contrarian in a very angry way? I mean, as you know, you write, you're within that market. Do you ever get tempted to come out there and just say, oh, yeah, J.D. Drew is lazy and, and this is this and just go through the checklist of, you know, basically troll things to say? I mean, does that tempt you to do that? Uh, personally, no, not the least. Um, I, I think that there are uh, there are different publications and different editors who have different philosophies. And certainly in the Boston market, especially because you have a, a ton of suburban dailies, uh, that cover uh, that cover the major sports teams. You'll have editors who say, "Just dig in. You really need to like have a striking, you know, have a really like, you know, just rip this guy and uh, and you know, kind of go Shaughnessy on him or you know, take the nuclear option." Although I do want to say, like, it's it's popular sport to beat up on Shaughnessy, but he actually had you know decades of beat writing experience, and so he was really good. You know, he was, he was really good, and you know, so when he is critical of someone, it's with that basis of experience. Yeah. And I think that there is a certain you know just you know I think that that's that's a good columnist. I think that it, uh, a good columnist is someone who inspires, uh, who inspires strong reactions, you know, who has strong opinions and inspires strong reactions, so long as they're ba- they have basis. Now, if he's just throwing shit out there, like, that's a different story. And I don't want to say Dan throwing shit out there, like right, anyone right. throwing shit out there. Um, but I think that if you have the experience, the wealth of experience to have strident opinions, then great, good for you. If you're just someone who's kind of new to the whole scene and all of a sudden you have no idea how an organization works or how you know an industry works and yet you're def- you, you have these definitive and sweeping statements, then I think that that's uh, a pretty big problem that reflects on you less than it does on the example that's set by others. Is it possible to elicit strong opinions by being kind of a voice of reason, so to write in a moderate tone but still get people to be like, oh, wow, I mean... Maybe you're writing with a contrarian stat, or maybe you're making a statement that other people are making. You're saying, you know, we shouldn't care about PEDs, for instance. And you're not saying it's a troll. You're just saying, you know, is there it might be the case that a lot of yes, people are doing you it. Just, so. You have to be smart, and you have to, or I shouldn't even say you have to be smart. You have to work a lot to find something that's going to be interesting and no one else is willing to do. Like, to be able to show something in a way that no one else is willing to put in that time, I think you don't have to be... Uh, mean or sarcastic about it, but if you can find, and I, I feel like a douche to, to put it lightly, with this 11 minutes of football thing, I don't think that trashed football. If you don't like football, then then you probably like football even less, but that wasn't a story to make fun of football. Uh, but for whatever reason, no one in the mainstream media had uh, had watched 10 football games and timed how much action they had. 
and it was interesting. No one had really seen that. And so that wasn't written in a, in a snarky way, but obviously it caught on and people found it interesting. This yeah. deals a lot with, I think, why people watch sports, quite frankly. Um, you know, there's a certain segment that, like the intellectual element of it, the statistical element, uh, they want to know the, the facts and that sort of thing. And then there's a larger, I think, group that just want to react emotionally. They just want to sit on their couch, watch the game, yell at the television. David Wright isn't going to tell them to take out the trash or pick up milk at the store. And they can yell back, and that's it. So those emotional arguments are going to resonate, I think, with a larger, more broad audience than necessarily uh, a more intellectual argument. Um, and so I think that has a lot to do with it. I, I, you know, I look at, at uh, traffic to my site and traffic to... Uh, Amazing Avenue, which is a, a statistical-oriented Mets blog, and they're completely different. Um, I think those guys are significantly more intelligent in terms of their approach. I'm definitely more emotional, but I think if they want to increase their audience, they'll have to increase, you know, how they their appeal, and vice versa. You know, there's probably a way for me to increase my audience by. So I, I think it's a matter of who you're trying to appeal to and how you approach it. Um, yeah. And I think that emotional is a larger, larger group. Talk radio is a perfect example of that. And ideally, I think if you're the Boston Globe who employs Dan Shaughnessy or whatever his name was, uh, you you <laughs> want man yeah, you want different voices. I mean, you want to appeal to the sports radio type who only listens and only calls in, and then you want you know a voice. Hopefully, you have someone who's going to be intellectual and analytical, and you have all those voices, and then you get all the audience. But Honestly, I mean, it's sometimes when they mix, it's awkward because the emotional fan sometimes doesn't want to know the facts. You explain things like, well, this guy's in a slump because of X, Y, Z reasons. They don't care. Well, they don't because have Because he's mix. lazy and he's not trying. They don't have to mix. I think you the know. people who listen to sports radio, I don't want to, you know, make a sweeping generalization. No, you can make sweeping generalizations. <laughs> you know, I don't know what the, what's the overlap between NPR and sports radio in terms of listeners. Yeah, there's a different I, There is a, the Venn diagram shows there is a small, you know, there is an overlap, but I don't think it's that big. Psychologically, there are different parts of the brain that both sides sure. respond to, and so there should hypothetically the appeal of both which is why even if it seems an unnatural marriage like right. there's still you know you'll still read uh you know a, a, on, a, on a given day you might still read bob ryan and whatever the and whomever the beat writer is that right. day i'm not sure i still i understand this and i agree but like also don't we have an obligation just to be smart yes i mean like yes. honestly like like to me the people that frustrate me are the people that i know are smarter than but are playing to that crowd. Like, to me, huh. like, if you look at uh, Shram Fawnessy and compare him to, like, a Joe Posnansky or a Bernie Nicholas, people that kind of did that and went up in that and then saw at one point that they needed to raise their game. And you don't always see that from, I'm not saying necessarily him or, but you certainly, I think the frustration that people have a lot of with columnists like this is they're, they haven't noticed that there is a different way that people are talking about sports and it's not just pinheaded nerds like it's not and like and and, and, I, and I, that, I think that's what's frustrating is people that are smart people that know but that aren't intellectually open to not so not even the stat stuff but just the way that like people talk about sports mm -hmm. that to me is what's frustrating and I think that's when you see someone like Poznanski or Miklas has done that right well hopefully as a business the media is evolving to a better place and that you're going to have more of the educated columnist type in the business, hopefully, who employ analytical tools, who look at fan graphs when they want to make a point, however snide or snarky they want to be in making a point, at least if it's informed and smart, right. then 
Oh, that, that's pretty good. I'll read that person. And let's not forget, like, the reading audience is also forcing that change because I think that, you know, the people who consume this information are more intelligent about all these matters than ever. And so the standard to which writers are being held is much higher than it's yeah. ever been because, I mean, it looks pretty dumb if you have a bunch of writers who know far, far less. Yeah. And honestly, like, I think that almost... You know, there, there are always going to be readers who are much smarter than the writers right, right, that they're reading. Right, 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 right. But I, I think that there's an obligation on our part to try to close the gap and catch up with yeah, a lot no of No one people. wants to be fired, Joe Morgan. Yes. As far as <laughs> um, so in the news business, there's something called a news hook. So we have a news hook in the news business that happened very recently um, on Will's former site, Deadspin. There was a story that came out a couple of days ago and involved a famous... I didn't write it, No, way. no, Will, absolutely. Will writes for New York Magazine and does a very good job right now. And by the way, A.J. Delario, who runs Deadspin, also does a very good job right now. And uh, anyway, so the story dealt with Brett Favre and uh, pictures of his wiener and things like that. <laughs> I love the word wiener, don't you? It's the best word. And um, so you have this going on. And then uh, I just read a story in the Chicago Sun-Times. Very interesting stories about a basketball recruit named Anthony Davis... And uh, the reporter, the writer, was basically alleging that he was selling his commitment to various schools, possibly University of Kentucky, all this stuff. And I thought that was interesting. And then last year, there was a story on a sports blog, uh, Midwest Sports Fans, and it basically said, Rola Banyas is probably using steroids. Based on these stats, I'm going to make that jump to conclusion. Exactly what it's What's that? I don't know if that's exactly what well, it's said. Well, okay. But yeah. I mean, there, you know, there was some right. implications right. there. And, and so again, and, and we'll start with you, Will. Um, um, <laughs> Are we at the point where we should be asking questions without the hardest evidence, for instance, with the PED stuff? If you go back to the late 90s and you really just close your eyes and you look at Mark McGuire's forearm, okay? You know, you're in a situation where, you know, maybe you should be asking these questions. Maybe I don't have the evidence, but maybe you should be. I'm, by the way, I'm mostly playing devil's advocate here. But, you know, right. so these things are out there or, you know, with something like college players being paid off. I would guess that there are some guys that are probably have been paid off in the past. We've seen that there have been cases like that. Where is the line between ethics and, and just being out there and asking the questions that maybe people should be asking more? Well, certainly, I think you know it, it's it's kind of a fun time to uh, to talk about how the, the the blurring ethics line in a lot of ways because there's more media <laughs> in a lot of ways that like it seems like wow ethics are totally eroding. Well, no, there's just like 85 times more media outlets than there used to be, and I'd say there's maybe one or two more times that there are ethical things that are... Like, there's always been ethical questions throughout the history of journalism and, and, and news coverage, and now they just, whenever they pop up, because it becomes an internet thing in a lot of ways. But certainly, should people, like, so the question, should people have been asking Mark McGuire if he was doing steroids? Should people have been writing it without... Writing. Well, someone did, and he got shouted down by the rest of the AP. <laughs> the right. AP writer that, that, uh, that wasn't a regular locker room guy came in, wrote about some of the things, uh, about the andro that was in McGuire's locker, and he was vilified. Does that have to, does by it have the to, other reporters? Does it have to be that way? So, for instance, Personally, right. I actually think I mean, who cares as far as I'm concerned. Me too. But, like, but right. you know, with stories like that. So there was another example with uh, Rolling Stone. The reporter comes in. He's covering General McChrystal, and this is political, but we'll try not to make it too political. Just the idea that he was an outsider, and that is it, is it the case that you can't get away with this? You know, maybe this is a question for some of the guys who are more, more on the beat writer side. Can insiders ask those kind of questions? Are you going to get ostracized? Are you going to be kicked out of the clubhouse? Do you have to write for Esquire to come in and do a story like that? Well, before I make the shift into that, you, yeah. you, you mentioned media, and I think that's part of it. That, you know, these are questions that were being asked, and you've made this point before I've seen, where, where people are asking these questions anyway. We were asking these questions amongst each other at a bar, hanging out, watching the game. 
Now you're writing it on a website. Maybe five people are reading it. Um, how is that any different than having that conversation in a bar and someone overhearing it? It's just that it's up on a website and somehow that's being deemed media. Is it journalism? Is it is it? You know, I think those are more of the questions that are going on. They're hard to define. And so you get people with certain opinion on it and they say, well, that's wrong because it's, you know, on print. But you could have written it on a cocktail napkin. Right. Um, and I think that's it makes it very ambiguous. But so anyway, I'm sorry. Just no, back to yeah. the beat writer. I mean, in terms of uh, in term, it is an incredibly awkward thing to try to investigate those questions. And there's a reason why in the history of journalism, there's been a separation between, right. you know, between beat slash sports coverage versus investigative journalism. Right. Uh, there are times when, you know, when you necessarily have to jump over that line as a uh, as a beat reporter. And frankly, it is incredibly awkward. And, you, you know, you worry about whether or not you're going to lose. Uh, lose access to people as a result of asking hard questions that they probably do not want asked. Um, and, uh, yeah, so it, it, it's, it's uncomfortable. There are times when you have to do it. There are times when you choose, when you choose not to, which is probably not the ideal journalistic outcome. And, you know, there's, there's just not a, there's not a clear blueprint for how to approach the... Does it behoove you to go to the paper and say to the investigative reporter, I saw something, I heard something, why don't, you know, to tip them off and then they could do it? I mean, would that work? Is that I think option? that, yeah, I think that's... Uh, I, I, in sports and, and in other places in our newspaper, I think we do try to think that way as if... Uh, and it's not to, to hide from people, but it's you, you team up with other reporters to try to go after something in a smart way and one person will go after it from one angle and one person will go after it from another angle. So if person X, uh, you know, gets in a disagreement with source Y, then this person can still get along with that person. And that way you have two people going at it from two different angles. And if, you know, one person hates another, then that person will still like the other person and you're not cutting yourself off uh, to, you know, to risk a story. I think the bigger question is, the bigger problem now with newspapers is do newspapers still have the resources to be able to devote two reporters to a story like that? Uh, and I think that's where a lot of the animosity comes against blogs because a blog, and God knows it, it does a lot of good asking these questions, but I think newspaper reporters get mad at the blogs because they feel as though they have, they have to do more things to prove their stories than a blog does, and so they get mad at the blog because the blog puts out the news. Newspaper reporter might have heard that six months ago, but was never able to print it, and now he feels spurred. But that depends on the blog, too. I mean, Perez Hilton is in the business of just the first thing that they hear, they're going to put it out there, and there are sports sites like that, too. <coughs> if you fancy yourself a blog with higher standards, it's the same thing as a newspaper. You know, yeah. the National Enquirer is... Yeah. Kind of a newspaper. I mean, it's the same sort of thing. Well, let's not think about this the other angle of this. Look at the Arash Markazi story that happened with LeBron James, yeah, yeah. for example. It's a great example of this. Like, uh, Can you explain it in like 15 seconds? Yeah, Arash Markazi wrote a piece where, uh, apparently, uh, he wrote a piece for ESPN where he hung out with LeBron James for an evening, and I believe it, and it was accidentally posted, actually. I think people were very skeptical <laughs> of that because of the decision that just comes, the decision thing, but it actually appears to have all, from all accounts, actually been accidentally posted, but regardless, who cares? It was out there. And basically, he had LeBron's kind of debaucherous night on the town, and it was posted and then deleted, and they end up not putting it back up because he didn't properly identify himself as a reporter. Now, on one level, I know that I went to journalism school. I understand that. I was training that. On another level, all those things did actually happen. Like, no one is actually denying that 
the, that Rashmar Karzi saw all these things. And it wasn't even that bad. It was just well, LeBron the thing, James is a That's teenager. the most interesting. I mean, yeah. The thing that people seem to get upset about was this whole thing that he was saying, yeah, maybe I'd rather play with Chris Paul than Chris Bosh. Like, that seemed to yeah. be the thing that people... For To me, that's what I thought. It wasn't everybody in Vegas goes and drinks and does this and that. But it was, it was, yeah. he was saying things about people that ESPN covers. I thought that was the issue. Yeah, and, 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 and frankly, if he said nothing, if, if that night out with LeBron was, and then we went and had sushi, and then we went to bed at 1130, yeah. like, there, there would have been no problem with that story. And I think, I think that is my general issue with that idea. It's like, yes, maybe there is the idea that he did not, which was kind of crazy that he didn't do that, actually, but that's <laughs> another story. Uh, that, uh, uh, but, like, certainly, oh, way. the reason it was taken down was because there were things that were upsetting to LeBron on there. And maybe it should have gotten published in the first place, but... Maybe it should. Like, if that's out there, these are things that happen. Like, basically, what ESPN was saying was that, like, this is actually something that occurred. And we are, no one is denying that this thing occurred, but we're taking it down because of this kind of archaic, this, this kind of, like, rule that we were all taught, but we don't really live in that information age anymore. Like, we live in an age where people are like, hey, I saw so and so at a bar, and I'm writing about it right now. And this is actually a guy who, Markazi is you know, generally considered, you know, he's not considered a bad reporter, but he's generally considered like a guy that knows this, that knows these people and has seen this stuff. The idea, like certainly he's a, like we, we don't think he made it up, is probably the best case. So to then take it down for that seemed like on, because you, you never get the story accidentally published in the newspaper. Right. Like it could be accidentally published online, but once it's out there and everyone's seen it, but you can still see it as easy as anything, that like why, it seemed like kind of this old, thing that's not really how we consume these things now. An important question is, you know, who do you want to, as a blogger or as a media outlet, whatever it might be, you know, what do you want to be? You know, what, what are you trying to accomplish? You know, for me, you know, I'm a Mets fan. I'm a, I'm a fan of the team. I write about the team. I love watching baseball. I, I like having the emotional reaction and, and watching the game with my dad and caring about what happens. And I don't want that to change. So while I have the ability to be in the clubhouse, I don't do it because I just have no interest in seeing what goes on behind the curtain. Once in a while I get a glimpse, and it may taint or change my view of the sport itself, and so I don't know that I want to know. Um, but that's my choice don't. as a blogger. What <laughs> you probably don't. <laughs> right. Frankly. Um, and that's my choice as a, as a fan, as a blogger, as, as using this tool that I have with, with a readership. But everybody makes their own choice. So your, your newspaper will make the choice of how they want to treat it, or Deadspin will make you know, their decision on how they want to treat content and what they're trying to accomplish with it, and I think that's a big part of it. I think, you know, you, maybe, you know, the impression is that why doesn't the media go in there and ask these tough questions and, you know, get these, these brutally honest answers? The modern-day athlete is so swaddled and savvy, <laughs> protected by the union and all kinds of things. If I were to be, you know, really close to... David Ortiz, and one day just said, come on, David, tell me, did you take pets? And, uh, you know, am I naive enough to think he's going to tell me? I mean, it's just not going to happen. So I think we need to be honest. You have to approach it from a different angle. Go to different sources, anonymous sources if you have to, that are, that are good and reliable. And occasionally you get an admission out of the blue. Like when the Ortiz stuff flared up last year, I contacted Bronson Arroyo because he was a teammate of Ortiz back then. And out of the blue, he said, oh, yeah, I was taking... Did you karate chop the ball out of his hand? Sorry. He he confessed to taking amphetamines and and all kinds of stuff back when he was a Red Sox. Like, out of the blue. So sometimes players are ready to admit stuff. Other times, they never will. This is important in that, again, to go back to what I was just saying, where, you know... I want the Mets to win, right? That's my ultimate goal as a fan. I want to see this team be successful. So what role does the truth necessarily play in that? So 
and it does to a certain extent for the health of the game and the future of the sport and all those things. But at the same time, really, I just want to see. I always ask actually this question of Mets fans: Had Mike Piazza, you know, hit a home run instead of a pop out in the World Series, and the Mets won that World Series, if after he crossed home plate, he stood and said, "I use steroids," would anybody give a shit? <laughs> My guess is Mets fans would say, ah, "That's our no problem." So, like, if that's the case... <laughs> that know, would be an awesome... It would be awesome. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so, like, if that's the case, if that's the case, then what are we digging for? You know, why are people asking those questions? So it's, it, And I think it gets back to sort of, this is entertainment, uh, this is news, this is a war over here, this is, a, you know, how do these things sift out, and what are the tools, and how are we telling these stories, and why are we trying to tell them? Right. I root for the story... And, you know, you were right. the Mets. Right, right, right. Mm-hmm. You know, somewhere in between we're providing right. content. But it was easier reader. to do that when there are only a few media outlets and mm-hmm. a few people controlling the switch with all the, you know, so that the I, I will say, I will tie that back to, uh, back to Twitter. I do wonder about, like, the, the fact that there are so many different outlets and the fact that there is this desperation for first. Um, the, you know, the accuracy of, uh, of stories as they develop is, uh, I think, been, it, been, you know, it's been diminished, which, is, which creates a lot of risks associated sure. with these sorts of stories and also with things like the trade deadline where people are, you know, going single source rumor like boom. And actually it's just manipulated media that one team is leaking out in order to get, you know, five minutes before the deadline saying this team is in on this guy, which is bullshit. But, you know, it makes a lot of sense for them to say that so that the team that's actually in says, OK, OK, well, up the ante. Yeah, that two hours that Manny Ramirez is getting traded. Ugh, yeah, yeah, yeah that, that, that ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Good times. I want to get to one or two more questions because I know we We've got a lot of stuff to do. So, um, David, uh, Jeff Foster, who's one of the editors over at the Wall Street Journal, uh, who's great. He used to run the New York Sun uh, sports section. The New York Sun was this tiny little New York paper. Yeah. Exactly. A fantastic sports section, and not only because I occasionally wrote for the New York Sun. You had uh, Aaron Schatz from Baseball Outsider. You had John Hollinger from ESPN. Uh, the Baseball Prospectus crew. Tim Marchman from SI.com. This was a fantastic sports section. Paper folds. And now they have me. Right, that's right. Uh, paper folds. Jeff goes to the journal. Uh, Jeff's working with Sam Walker, the editor of Fantasyland, who's great, has great ideas and stuff like that. Adam Thompson's great. David works for them. Dave Cameron has written for the journal. Uh, all kinds of interesting people. And to me, again, that and the KC Star, I think those are probably, you could argue, the two best sports uh, papers in the country. So my, I guess my question is, what exactly makes a good sports section? Most of us probably consume sports at this point. Online, we're just, we don't sit with our coffee and our muffin like people used to, and a pipe or whatever it is we do, and kind of, oh, look, like there's the box score. That's just not how we're missing out. Right. So, so how do you, what is, what is the way to draw people in? Well, beside what Will said, which is have a good headline, uh, which is too bad, but I think you have to be smart and you have to be funny. That, that to us is kind of the company line is, uh, if something is really, really, really interesting and really smart and you have breaking news, then it'll be good. But if it's not, then the bar to pass is being funny uh, because people want to laugh. You know, it's sports for a reason. We're not reading about what's happening in, in the Mideast and we're not, you know, reading about how the economy is still terrible. It's sports. And so you should be having fun. And that is what we stress uh, hopefully it shows in every one of our stories that, you know, we're trying to make jokes about things and, and be analytical, which is a really difficult thing. And one, I, I spoke with Joan about this was, uh, I think the, the, the hardest thing about being analytical is doing it in a way that people are going to understand. 
and so you don't have to try to prove to your reader that you're really smart and that you did something in a really complicated way. Even if you did something in a really complicated way and it's really smart, you have to just make it easy to understand, which sucks for us because we like complicated things and we like looking at math, but nobody else does. Uh, so you have to really keep in mind, you know, that you're not writing for the people in, you know, uh, the write for Fangraphs. You know, you're writing for everyone who just likes to kick back with a beer and watch a baseball game, you know, and, and hates math and has hated math their entire life. And you have to teach them math without letting them know that it's math, which is a really hard thing. And that's what we try to do. Okay. Uh, the, the, uh, um, the beat writer for the journal that does stories for the Mets, Mike, what, what's his name? Ah, uh, Sielski. Right. Um, I've, I've never met him, but I think he's fantastic. Yeah. And I think what's interesting to me uh, is that, and I've talked to some of the other beat writers for the other newspapers about this, and they're, I think they're a little nervous about it because he doesn't necessarily report <laughs> what happened during the game. Because why would you? Yeah. I just watch the game. Yes. I watch the post game. For instance, with the Mets, the SNY post game, they tell you everything that you really need to know yeah. that happened. Um, so to report that. 13 hours later in a newspaper is yeah. ridiculous. Well, that, um, and he does a terrific job of yeah. spending some time getting a story, yeah. telling me something that I wouldn't experience through the game. And it's terrific. Um, there's a little education in it. It's informative. And, it, and I think that's probably what, what the future of that is, because, you know, you've got there's no reason why, again, to go back to the Mets, that uh, their sideline reporter can't be writing a blog and doing bits and pieces of information. And, you know, so there's a written component to it. But that other story still needs to be told because it's interesting and it, it does inform about the larger context of the game, which is important. I, I definitely think that a lot of baseball writers and a lot of fans will tell you that, yeah, the, the traditional game story is dead. Where we had the advantage was we just started a, a daily New York section about three or four months ago. And so we had never had game stories before. So it was much easier for us right. to go the route of not having them as opposed to basically every other newspaper would have to make the decision. We're going to kill our game yeah, stories. They, they, they run AP stories. I mean, people just fire beat writers in a lot of cases. Yeah, and so we had the advantage. We never had to make that monumental decision because we never had anything so we just got to start from doing that and yeah and that's what we really try to do is you know obviously you want to know what the score is but you know if you care about the Mets and you know you don't know what the score of the game is until you open the newspaper the next morning you're not a real fan Mike's uh, so. in a similar transition the Herald has kind of has kind of you know stepped away from the traditional gamer and, and yeah this year we finally yeah. It dawned on us about five, ten years late that <laughs> the game story is dead. And how we're, uh, you know, we have snippets, you know, here's a key play, big yeah. inning, star of the game, a little bit of a wrap-up. Two or three would basically be the first two graphs of an AP story. You know, we throw that in because Clay Buckles pitched seven or third, you know, Great endings last night. Maybe you had a power outage. Right. You need to have a brief synopsis. Exactly. As a writer, do you like that approach? Do you like doing something? I, I do like it. Yeah. I think a lot of... Yeah, I think I think it makes a lot of sense. Everyone's watching the game, so we're wasting time and power and resources. I think what what papers are trying to do, like like Matt and David are saying, is provide analysis the next morning. Or if there was a controversial play, you know, go in. What we offer and you know, bloggers cannot is access to the player. 
describe what happened on the cast of Jacoby Ellsbury that you made last night. Well, get his reaction, and then that's a service. Jacoby Ellsbury doesn't play. What are you talking about? I know. He's An interesting concept would be to take that play. I always thought would be interesting is to take that play and then have a statistical analysis, you know, some sort of an emotional thing, have a Q&A with the player on it, bring these different – give me something that I cannot get on my own. Now, there are bloggers that I know that, that are, uh, you know, just starting. Or they, they don't. I'm, I'm ten times the writer that guy is. How come he gets – but that's the reality. There's a brand in place. Your newspapers have a brand. They have a connection with the team. They allow you to be in the in, in the locker room. You have ad money that's coming in that can support it, hopefully. Uh, and so, you know, you can build these different types of ideas and different identities that I think can work uh, post. I think one, or one issue with the idea, and I, I think people outside of the clubhouse don't get this, and there's no reason that they would because they've never been in there, is that idea of... Jacoby Ellsbury has a bad play. I'm going to go in and sit down with him after the game and ask him five questions about it. He's not going to sit down with you and answer five questions, and, and even if he did, every one of them would be, well, I gave 110%. It's, <laughs> or layered it's, in the next split is. It's, I mean, it's unbelievable how these athletes, and this goes back to something else we were saying, was they're so coddled and they're so taught from day one when they're in high school and they're, you know, a, or a Little League All-Star to not say anything, to just say, well, I tried my hardest, and, and, and if it was good, then it was because the team did it, and if it was bad, you know, then they just don't know. And then there's the immortal baseball players. If they're playing well, they don't like to talk because they don't want to jinx themselves, and if they're playing badly, they don't want to talk because they're in a bad mood. It's not easy to go we and... Be, we should be working harder than you know. to create that demand in the readership so that there's a usefulness for the player to actually express why it happened. You know, yeah, you can, you can, it's say, hard to create that yeah, usefulness if the guy is making $10 million, he doesn't I, give I, a shit. Listen, also, any time a player says something interesting, we kill them yeah, for yeah, it. It's true. <laughs> but you can, <laughs> ask, no you can ask something like, well, what direction was the ball coming off the bat? Uh, like, they'll answer they're that. Good, right, exactly. They're very good at answering right. baseball questions. What right. were you thinking Sometimes. on that play? What happened? Yeah. Some are better at articulating it than others. Grunts. But... Right. Well, I have a follow-up to this. So, um, so when I was reporting on the raise books, I talked to basically all the players, and a lot of them do give kind of pat answers. But then I found that there were a couple of them. Uh, Gabe Kapler was one. I freaking love Gabe Kapler. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I could talk to Gabe Kapler all day. We didn't even talk about baseball. We talked about what books is he reading. And we talked about – I talked to Fernando Perez. He's a published poet. We talked about philosophy. We talked for like two hours. It was unbelievable. And do you seek out guys, like, you know, you get the feel for the clubhouse, do you go looking for the one guy who usually isn't a star, by the as, way? As someone who had, like, 300 stories involving Gabe Kapler on days he didn't play, I would say the answer is yes. Um, of course. We, you know, yeah, the no. greatest evidence of this is why uh, David Eckstein had so many stories written about him and how he was the ultimate scrapper. David Eckstein will, will talk with you. He'll sit down and, just like that, he'll talk about philosophy and what kind of books he likes. But readers then plaster that guy, and they right. say, why is David Eckstein all over the place? Because he's the only one who's going to talk. He's the I only mean, you're one on the road, you're on the road you know, half the year, you're eating crappy hot dogs, you're away from your family, yeah. and you want to talk to somebody yeah. who seems like they have a brain, right? I mean, yeah. yeah. Okay, yeah. so I have a, a question for Matt, actually. So you have some access, right, despite the fact that you're a blogger, you have access. Okay, so... Jason Fry, let's make this last question. Okay. So uh, Jason Fry is a kind of friend of a bunch of us, uh, and he writes about journalism topics. And he was talking about, uh, he recently had access. He's a big Mets guy. He writes uh, Faith and Fear and Flushing. He's great. 
And he said that he recently had access and uh, he felt ambivalent about it. He, he's just, you know, as an outsider, he's an outsider, he goes in, doesn't know what to do. Do you feel like uh, for bloggers, they should have more access, less? What are you gaining? What are you losing? I mean, there are advantages to being an outsider where you can say whatever you want, not have to worry about the guy's reaction or whatever. But at the same time, does access help? So I'm curious your take particularly because you can well, kind of play both sides. I think part of it is that frame, right? Like we're all bloggers at this point. Yeah. So uh, the question is, do should, should a regular emotional uh, fan be allowed in the clubhouse? Um, you know, I think it depends on what you're trying to accomplish as a media outlet because, like I said earlier, you're going to be exposed to certain realities that are inevitable to start to desensitize that fanship. It's going to change. And so it depends on what you're trying to accomplish. Um, I don't know that that's, a, that that's necessarily an, a, a question to answer because I think it's up to who's putting that blogger there in the first place or that fan. Um, so, you know, I was there the night that uh, Jason was there and a bunch of Mets bloggers, actually, they, they credentialed, which for me was wild to see because being the first one that was ever there and then have all these people with me, it was fantastic. Um, you know, and they all kind of were, in, you know, bewildered because uh, what are you going to do? You're going to ask questions. You, you don't have the relationships that you guys have. You spend every day with them, with these players. You, you build a relationship. You don't have that when you just walk in cold, especially as a fan. Um, and if you spend enough time to develop those relationships, then you're a reporter and you're detached from the emotion of being a fan. And it's so like it, it kind of cancels each other out. Um, so whether or not they should or shouldn't be there, I don't know if it's really relevant. I think it depends on why you want them there. Yeah, I have to say that uh, just with the race thing. So I didn't know I didn't know any of these guys when I started the book. And, uh, you know, I, I it was a little bit like the Rolling Stone Outsider thing. You're right that you don't have a relationship, but you can come in, you can ask. So what do you think about the Earth's gravitational pull? And they wouldn't think it was weird because they don't know you. They just think you're a actually, guy who's interested in the Earth's gravitational pull. I actually had very interesting conversations with people, even though I never knew them, because I asked questions that probably never... None of them Joe heard. Madden actually asks a lot about the Earth's well, gravitational yeah, pull with people he doesn't know. The biggest problem I had, actually, was with the other reporters. Hmm. Um, you know, I, uh, the, my first time was uh, I, I was in the clubhouse in uh, spring training, and I made a comment on Mets blog about how the reporters operate, that it looked a little weird. All these guys are sort of lingering around the locker room while these men were trying to get ready for work. It was awkward. Um, and I got lambasted by uh, a couple of the beat writers, like lectured in front of other, you know, just, blah, blah, you know, and they're rightfully so, because what did I know? Like, that's, you know, I didn't understand what was happening and why that was occurring and, and, and what the players felt about it and what the reporters were doing. Like, I didn't know. It's still um, awkward. Yeah. It's, like I've had well, I agree, and that's why I don't go in there. <laughs> um, but, you know, it's, so it's, it's an interesting experience, and you're right. You could risk enough. You know, so if you're a team and you put a fan in there, you've got to know. Now, look, it's not an open door. So someone's granting you the ability to be there. There was a screening process somewhere. When these mess bloggers were there that night, they didn't have clubhouse access. They were able to watch batting practice from the field. Um, big difference. And as these guys would tell you. So, you know, I think... If you're going to grant someone the ability to be in the clubhouse, there, there's a level of trust that's been earned over time, either through the newspaper or whoever granted the press credential. So I, I don't know that it's necessarily just, ooh, any old fan's going to wander in there and just start writing about everything that's in lockers and taking pictures and posting it on blogs. It's not going to happen. Um, you know, to get in there, you've done something to earn the respect and trust of the organization and the media outlet and probably the players. Um, and so that's kind of the way I see it. I have clubhouse access. Like I said, I rarely, if ever, go in there. I only do if I'm trying to find the media director to set up some sort of interview outside on the field. Um, 
you know, but they know that's how I'm going to approach it. So there's a trust. And I think that's why I'm there. Guys, thanks very much.